Revelation chapter number 14. I'm going to begin reading verse number 1. The Bible says, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood in the Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and the voice, uh, the voice of great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among, from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. Now we'll stop there for a moment. If you remember, several chapters back, with the loosing of the seals on the book, at one point the seal was loosed, and an angel went and marked in the forehead of 144,000 that they were God's chosen, that they were the one that would be redeemed. Okay? This chapter is a continuance of that, but now they're already in the wilderness. Okay? We, two weeks ago and then three weeks ago now, in chapter number 13, we saw what the Antichrist what the prophet will desire to do unto God's people in the wilderness. But then we also know that God made a haven for them. He made a place of rest where no matter where they were, I mean, he, for 40 years he led them through the wilderness with Moses and they stayed lost the whole time. Right? If God wants you not to be found, you're not going to be found. Right? I mean, look at the, it's only so big. For 40 years, if you walked all over, you should know it like the back of your hand. You would think. But why couldn't they find the way to the promised land? Because none of them knew the way. Only God knew how to get there. Well, how come the Antichrist and the prophet and Satan himself, the dragon, won't be able to find these 144,000 to destroy them? Because only God knows where they're at. And until he reveals it, which is when the battle of Megiddo happens, we'll get to that later. But until it is revealed, they've got a haven. They've got a cleft in the rock. They've got a place where they are not only protected by God's hand, okay, but led by God. Look at verse number 1. And I looked, and lo, a capital L lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred and forty-four thousand, having his father's name, capital F, father, name written in the forehead. Well, not only does God know where they're at, God's with them. Now, I do believe that this is a metaphorical with them. Why do you say that? Because if the lamb slain before the foundation of the world was standing on the mountain with them, the second coming would have already happened. And that hadn't happened yet. Okay, when he comes back, he's going to land on, not Mount Zion, but on the Mount of Olives. And he's going to split the sucker right down the middle. So what's it talking about in verse number 1? The presence of the Lord is with them. Notice, if you will, that not just one, okay, but the one. It says, And lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion. But where did he meet Moses in the burning bush on a mountain? Okay, how many 
meetings between God and man have taken place on a mountain. Go back and study it. Many times it would say that I'm going to go meet with God on the mountain. Paraphrasing. God himself may not have been physically on the mountain, but his presence was. I'll remind you with Moses that God opened up the veil between heaven and earth and wrote on stone tablets with his very finger, according to your Bible. He wasn't standing on the mountain, but how far away was he? He was on the mountain. He was right there. So don't marvel that the second coming of Christ hadn't happened yet, but it says that there's a lamb on the mountain. That he's all places at all times. I mean, the story of the disciples shut up in the house afraid after he had been resurrected. What are they going to do to us when they find out that the body's gone? Then all of a sudden, Jesus was in the midst. He was there the whole time. He just opened their eyes. Well, how did he get there? Well, he walked through a wall just like he'd been walking all over the face of this earth since its creation. You can't contain God. So when it says that the Lamb's on the mountain with them, don't marvel at that. He's still in heaven, but he's also on that mountain with them. Okay, it says that the Lamb stood on Mount Zion and with him 144,000, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. How did those 144,000 get to the mountain where the Lamb was? Well, the Father led them. Okay, we do see a partial similarity to the grace age and salvation when he bought them when he bought us what did he do he stamped you with his holy spirit he sealed you he put his name on you anybody ever seen toy story Andy put his name on the foot of every single one of them toys that's how they knew they was Andy's okay, I remember in the second one some restorer Right, trying to make Woody because he's the most valuable toy ever apparently right, trying to restore him back to factory what do you do? He painted over that name just because the world tried to paint over it doesn't mean that God's name still isn't on you man looketh on the outward appearance you don't know what's under some of the life and some of the world that's stuck to people right, these 144,000 God speaks of them as royalty, as a chosen generation. It's his chosen people that have been purified. That he always desired that, but they would not commit to God in such a manner that they could come to God. He's always desired them, but these are the ones that they forsook all. And God put his name in their forehead, meaning they're mine. Not because I took them, but because they chose to be mine. Well, verse number two, heard a voice from heaven and a voice of many waters and a voice of great thunder and I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. What is it? It's loud. It's got a lot of pleasantness to it, but it's also got a lot of power to it. It says, as it were, many waters, voice of great thunder, but then it says, and harps. I don't think of harps necessarily as powerful. Harps are melodious. Harps are pleasant to hear. But it's pleasant and it's powerful. And what is this voice? The 144,000 says, saying as it were a new song before the throne. God's singing to them the song that God desires them to sing back to Him. But how do you know that God's singing it, Brother Jordan? 
But because it says, and they sung as it were a new song before the throne, before the four beasts and the elders, and no man could learn that song but the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. The beast, the four beasts before the throne of God. The four and twenty elders. They're sitting there and they can't hum along. All through this chapter, we've seen the beast, four beasts saying things, giving instructions. We've seen some of the elders giving instruction to John. God's revealed certain things to them so that they can reveal them to John. But on this one, the guys who have known the most so far, they don't know nothing. They just got to sit there and they got to enjoy the performance. But how are they going to sing a song that's never been sung before? Because God wrote it for them. God taught it to them. It's not the Lamb among them. Does not the Lamb always desire to bring glory and honor and satisfaction to the Father? So what do you think the Lamb's doing on that mountain? Instructing them in righteousness. Same thing that the Lamb has always done. The Lamb came so that man could find favor in what? The eyes of God to redeem fallen man. So what's the Lamb doing? The Lamb's teaching them, one, how to live for God, but two, he's teaching them how to worship God, how to love God. And that love spills over. God teaches them the song, from, but then what? Then they sing back to God. And it says before all these people, what it's saying is before all creation, they're not ashamed to sing this song of praise and worship and love back to God that's never been sung before. They feel honored and privileged to reverence God with a song that God hadn't let anybody else sing before now. Then it says, verse number four, these are they which are not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. Well, What's this verse talking about? Well, later on we're going to read a verse talking about Babylon. Okay, all throughout Israel's history, time and time again, when God would send a man or when God would directly speak with the people of Israel, when they had fallen away from God, turned their back on God, he always makes an analogy that they left their first love. That they had gone after strange idols or strange women. Strange doctrine. That they had committed adultery. Not physical, spiritual. When it says that these 144,000 were all virgin, it means they had never worshipped anything else but God. They had forsook all and they had stayed faithful to God. That is a great, great compliment to the 144,000. You wake up every day if you're saved and you choose whether or not you're going to follow God or whether or not you're going to follow God. There's not people beating at your front door saying you better not worship God today. You're not running through the woods persecuted because you won't worship something other than God today. 
You don't have to fear that you're going to have to watch your children or grandchildren slaughtered before your very eyes so that you'll recount or recant the name of Jesus Christ. Yet they live in that fear every day, but what's it say? They're faithful. There's never been another name in their mouths other than the name of Jehovah. It says that not only have they been faithful, it says that they follow the Lamb whithersoever He goeth. Who's leading them? God. Why? Because God bought them. God's name's in their forehead. God's not going to leave them to the world. God leads them. Not only are they faithful, they're followers. And I believe that because of the context, they're not belligerent followers. They're not complaining followers. They're not followers that are questioning wherever they're going. I believe that they're followers in name because they are followers in act. They trust. And they're just following. They don't need the answers. They just need the lamb to show them where they're going. I believe that it is true faith, not veiled faith, not faith in word, but not in act. I believe it's the faith that Israel should have had when they were in the wilderness the first time, when they were led out of Egypt. But this time, God takes them to the wilderness, and what do they do? They just follow. They follow the lamb because they know that the Lamb loves the Father, and they know that the Father promised to take care of them. So they follow the Lamb. Because these were redeemed from, um, from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and the Lamb. Where'd they come from? They came out of the same place that everything else came out of. But notice it didn't say that God brought them out. It says these were redeemed from among men. They were not redeemed because God chose them. They came out from among men, and because of their faith, God redeemed them. Do not misconstrue any part of the book of Revelation to think that people are predestined to go to heaven or to hell. These 144,000 had to choose to forsake all and to follow after God. Also notice, if you will, it doesn't say that these 144,000 are the only fruits that came out of Israel. It said these are the first fruits of Israel. These are the ones that God reserved for what? Himself, just like your tithe is reserved to God. The first fruits of His people are reserved unto God. We don't have time to get there, but God chose way back in the day that Aaron and the Levitical priest out of the, fam or the bloodline of Levi, that Aaron's bloodline would be the high priest and that the Levites would serve in the house of God instead of the firstborn of every kindred and every tribe out of Israel. God owned them all. They were all reserved and should have been his. But God said, as long as y'all live right, I'll accept the Levites as substitute for the first fruits of all Israel. They were always reserved to God. They were always his. Why wasn't God able to use them? 
Well, because they didn't surrender themselves unto God. God will not force you. But why is his name in their foreheads? Because he, he owned them. They were the first fruits. But these came out among from the world to separate themselves unto what? The one that they chose to follow. It's not just that God put his name on them. They gave themselves unto God. Their identity was not in their own name. It was in the name of their father. They associated more with being one of his than being an individual or being a part of the world. They lost themselves in the identity of who they belonged to. Didn't matter where they went. Doesn't matter where they go, what they eat, where they're sleeping that night. All that matters is that they're one of his. And that's what they desire. They were the first fruits of the Lamb. But what happens? I know that 144,000 are all that are left by the end of the tribulation. Something just doesn't sit right with me, the people that teach that only 144,000 Jews are coming out of the great tribulation. I don't, I don't find that. In fact, we've already read that there's a number which cannot be numbered that comes out of every nation, every tribe, every kindred, every language. You know what that means? Jews is included. But God has purified His people down to what? 144,000. The first fruits. It says that they follow after. Verse number 5 talks about their character. It says, In their mouth was found no guile. That is an amazing thing. It says, For they are without fault before the throne of God. Didn't Jesus say the same thing to Nathaniel? When he saw him coming, he said, Behold, an Israelite whom there is no God. He said, you, Lord, you don't even know me. He said, I saw you sitting under the fig tree before you even got up and started heading this way. Nathaniel said, That's good enough for me. He's the Lord. I think of that every time I read this verse. Because guile is not something that you hear, even though it says it was not found in their mouth. Guile is something that you see. Guile is saying one thing, doing the other. Guile is not only dishonesty. Guile is false commitments. I heard it preached my entire life, and it took effect... I have made very few promises or vows, as your Bible would call them, to God. Why? Because I know I forget, but God does not forget. Then the Bible talks very seriously about keeping those things which you have vowed to God. Because if you don't, it's not God's word that you broke, it's your word. It's something that you added to yourself, but you'll pay the price for it as well if you don't keep up to your promise. Let's just take a moment. But Tyler already prayed. We ought to be thankful beyond all reason that God not only remembers all of his promises, but he's got all power to keep all of them every single day. But it says there's no guile found in their mouth. You know what they vowed? They vowed, they made the public proclamation, they made the private proclamation that they were God's. 
And you know what these two verses, verse number 4, verse number 5, tell us? That not only did they make the vow, they kept it. It says there was no guile. You know what guile, really, if we were to boil it down, you know what guile is? Guile is that thing. Anybody ever had crab legs? Okay, snow crab legs are my favorite. If you're in the leg, it's all meat. Then they got that white thing at the end. I call it the knuckle. It's not really a knuckle. But it's all cartilage that the crab legs are attached to. Every now and then, you get a bit of something. I don't know what it is. Right? It's like a greenish color that spreads through the crab. It's probably just salt or preservative or something. But it dilutes it. And you can pick that part of it off. Guess what? The rest of it tastes funny now. It tastes briny. It tastes salty. You say, well, there's just a little bit of it. Yeah, but it was guile. And it made the whole thing taste funky. You have to cut that out before you can enjoy the rest of the crab legs. You got to make sure that all trace of it is gone. What is guile? Guile's a little thing. Could be dishonesty. Right? It could be the guile that Lucifer had, which was he desired to exhort his name and position his throne above the throne of Christ. What was that? That was guile within him. Something impure that ought not be there. That's guile. But it says here that they had no guile. Not even the smallest amount. In fact, it says, for they are without fault before the throne of God. Now, I do not frustrate the Word of God. Does it say that they were sinless? No. It said that they were without fault. Do we need to go to chapter number 1 in the book of Job? Job was an upright man who feared God. to shoot A perfect man. It did not say sinless. It said perfect. Perfect meant complete. You know what without fault means? It means that everything they promised to God, they kept. means that they didn't forget one promise that they had made to God because they desired and appreciated and loved so much that God never broke one of His promises to them. They still got to come in under the blood like you and I. They were redeemed. They were brought out of the world. They were bought back. But they still got to believe. In fact, their descendants, later on in this book, after a thousand years of peace, they're going to have to make the decision whether to believe on Christ or whether to believe in a lie of the devil. they got to choose to be saved, just like you did. But it says that they were without fault. They were so faithful that they were faithful without fault. I believe that that's what the Apostle Paul meant when he said, I fought a good fight and finished my course. Was he sinless? No, he said, oh, wretched man that I am. He said that he was chiefest of sinners. He said every day he had to kill the flesh and sacrifice it, put it back on the cross so that he could follow Christ. That there were days that he knew what to do and knew not what to do, and even though he wanted to do the right thing, he'd still end up doing the wrong thing. What did he say? He was human. But I believe when he stood before the Lord, the Lord said, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
I believe that God said, you fought a good fight, you finished your course. Henceforth, there's laid up for you a crown of right. Why do you think the Apostle Paul was so confident in it that he wrote it down? Because he believed that God had already told him that. He had heard it through the Holy Ghost. And so as an inspiration to the younger generation, he said, I, I did it. Wasn't easy. There was persecutions. Right? There was thorns in the flesh. There were people that betrayed me. There was the world that tried to kill me. The religious crowd. There was mercy that I found in the arms of the enemy. But through it all, it was worth it in the end. But when it says that they were without guile and that they were without fault before the throne of God, it means that they tasted, they saw that the Lord was good, and they just hooked up with Him and they stayed hooked up with Him. Were they sinless? No. Because if they were sinless, they wouldn't have needed to be saved. But not only were they identified with God, not only were they embedded with the very name of God, every day they just inched forward with God. Some days it may have felt like they was running, some days it may have felt like they was crawling. But through the end of the tribulation, God says, that's my people that I've always desired to look for. People that were sold out to Him wholly, entirely. And that were without impurity, without guile. They had no fault. Were they perfect? No. But they were what God was looking for, which was faithful. And they weren't just faithful in word. They were faithful in every aspect of their life. Then verse number 6. It says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. And there followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And their smoke, or in the smoke of their torment, ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day nor night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. We get three messengers from heaven. That's what angel means. And these three messengers, the first, even after all that has gone on on this world. You want to know how long-suffering is God? How merciful is God? How much does God love the world? Well, even after the world rejected the Son that He sent, for God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, even after they've burned down every memory or every mention of Him on the face of the earth, trying to wipe out the name of Christ from history books, only the beast remains. Only the 
dragon remains. Only the prophet remains. They're the ones that are being worshipped. God opens up the heavens again. Sends an angel with what? Preaching the gospel. Says to all nations, all kindreds, everybody. How long suffering is God? So much so that it causes him suffering to be so merciful and so patient and to wait so long. Keep in mind, all the while, those saints that have been martyred up to this point, they're still crying out before the throne of God. Lord, how long will we wait to be avenged? He says, just a little time. But how much does God care about the fate of humanity? One more time, He sends a messenger to tell them, here's the gospel. Same gospel that you received. It's the same gospel they're going to hear. Because there's only one. Then it says, second angel, saying Babylon has fallen. It says it again, it's fallen. That great city. Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Babylon is not necessarily a place. Yes, we know that there was a Babylonian empire. In the book of Revelation, Babylon is not a specific destination. It is a specific ideology. It is a specific people. May not be a country. Maybe a religion. But Babylon is fallen. It says it's fallen. No doubt about it. It didn't trip, it fell. And then not getting back up. But notice why Babylon fell. We don't have time to get into Babylon or the horror of Babylon and all that today. That's coming along later. But Babylon, the nation that bought into idolatries, into spiritual fornication, the opposite of the people we just read about, then not only embraced it, they forced it and sold it to other nations. They propagated it. It says, Babylon has fallen that great city because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. She made others a part of her fornication, but by doing so, she made them drink of the wrath, which is the punishment for that fornication. What wrath is that? The wrath of the judgment of God. But it says she made. She may not have made them embrace a false religion. But by giving them the opportunity when they said yes, she made them what? Twofold the child of hell. She made them what? Cemented their fate, their future, where their soul would spend eternity. Which is where poured out in the wrath or having the wrath of God poured out on it. We hear a little bit about that from the third angel in verse number nine. Third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in, the, in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Doesn't it say that the nation Babylon made others drink what? Of the wine. What wine? This wine. In verse number 10, it says, The wine of the wrath of God. 
What does that wine picture? That God squeezed it out. That is how you make grape juice. By the way, you got to squeeze it. There's a funny video out there of a reporter who tried to do the grape stomping thing and then she fell out of the barrel. It's very funny. Okay? It's a classic. But that's how they used to do it. Some of them, if they were weird, they'd do it with their feet. You know how Israel did it? They had wine presses. You know, that was, it was a big old rock that you had a screw on top of that had a either giant rock or a piece of wood and you'd clamp that thing down, what would it do? It would smash the grapes to where no juice was left in it. When it talks about the wine of the wrath of God, it's not something that God has, you know, in haste or in anger or in unjustness reacted or lashed out. It meant, no, God, this is righteous indignation. Christ did not, in anger, drive out the money changers from the house of God. The Bible says that he was filled with what? Righteous indignation. He went and he removed emotion from himself and made a three-corded whip. He would not lay hands on them. Right? This was not something that he would defile himself with violence with. Instead, he went and he made a tool. And what did that tool do? It drove. Didn't say he made a cat of nine tails as a three-corded whip. You know what you do with that? You herd. Animals that are afraid of that crack at the end of the whip. He didn't beat them. He didn't flog them. He drove them out as unknowing cattle or unknowing herds of animals. The shepherd doesn't hurt the flock. He does what's best for the flock. Sometimes he's got to make a loud noise so that they go in the other direction. That, that was not wrath poured out upon those money changers. Or on this. He had pity on them. Every now and then God sends a whip. They call James and John the sons of thunder. Every now and then God sends a man. Sometimes they were called prophets. Sometimes they were called bishops, sometimes they were called apostles, sometimes they were called preachers, sometimes they were called pastors. But God has always had a remnant of people that what? That sound like a crack of a whip. What God expects and what God finds acceptable. That is not God's wrath. That's God's instruction. That's God's correction. Here, this is God's punishment. Because he is righteous, he would have been justified to pour out his wrath on us at any moment. But it says here that God has pressed out his wrath. He's gotten every bit of it. Didn't leave any bit behind. And this wine that he pours out, look in verse number 10, it says it, without, it, that the wrath of God which is poured out without mixture into the cup of His indignation. God's righteousness is the cup because only righteousness can judge unrighteousness. And He's the only that is righteous. His indignation is that sin is a very affront to His existence. 
That's the cup that he's pouring it into. But notice how he poured it. It says without mixture. You know what man has received since the garden? When Adam and Eve sinned? They have received God's judgment mixed with God's love and mercy and long-suffering. It has been mixed with God's compassion. With God's care for you. God pours out correction and judgment and instruction and He tries through that vein of love and that correction to steer you back to where you ought to be. This is no longer correction. It says that His wrath is poured out or is poured without mixture. You know what's coming? The pure wrath of God into a cup full of His righteous indignation. That's why it is indignation, because He is righteous. It's the only way you can be indignant, is if you are first righteous and know what unrighteousness is. Because of His righteousness, He has the right to pour out wrath, but this time, He's not judging through compassion. He's judging through wrath, through indignation. There's no correction that's going to temper it. There's no compassion. Why? Because he just sent two more messengers. What without excuse today not to believe on the name of the Son of God? Throughout all history, man's been without excuse not to recognize that there is a God and that he's worthy of worship. From the very beginning, we knew that he was greater than we were. That's why God came down to the garden to worship with Adam and with Eve in the cool of the day. They could not go to where he was, so he came to them. He was greater than they were. Made in his image. Made with a sinless body, but they were not God. Could not attain to be God. Since the beginning, we've known we are not God. And even though man knows that he is not perfect, one day's coming where man will finally pay the price for not realizing that because we are not perfect, we're not worth worshiping. Every idolatrous religion, Babylon as you would call it, you know what it is? It is the worship of man. They take man's characters and they put it on a face and they give it a name and then they worship that ideal so that people feel better about themselves for acting the way that they do. They come up with somebody, it doesn't matter what you do, you'll be forgiven as long as you do this. Why? To ease man's conscience. To give man a little bit of false hope. Some of them overdid it. In India, if you believe in Hinduism, they've got over three million different deities. Good luck with that. I got a hard enough time keeping track of the ones that were in the Disney movie Hercules, and that wasn't even all the Greeks. Three million. How many different patron saints of whatever do the Catholics have? Oh, they're not God, but they can do things for you. only person that can do something for you is God. But yet, oh no, this one will keep bad things from happening. What are they? Their tails to keep the boogeyman away at night when they lay their head on their bed. 
so that they don't lose sleep, that they believe a lie. All it is is the glorification of man and what man has done, teaching that man can make himself into something more than man. Well, once and for all, God's finally going to pour out His wrath without mixture into the cup of His indignation for what purpose? To mete it out unto those that deserve judgment. You know who deserved judgment? Those that rejected Christ. I deserve to receive the judgment of God, but I won't. You know why? Because I was judged for my sin at Calvary. I will not receive that wrath. Because when he looks at me, he sees his son to robe me in his righteousness. You know who will receive the judgment when God looks at him and he sees them instead of Christ. They're the ones that will have the unmixed, the unmitigated wrath of God poured out on them. Look at me, if you will, in verse number 12. It says, Here is the patience of the saints. We've read that phrase before. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. The patience of the saints. Last time we talked about the patience of the saint. It was in reference to the children of Israel in the wilderness they're not going to be begging God Lord how long must we stay in the wilderness they're patient last time we see Israel wandering around in the wilderness following God there were many that bickered that doubted that questioned God they were not patient they were quick to disbelieve what they had claimed they had believed in and to doubt. I believe that these 144,000 in the wilderness, they will not be asking the Lord how long because they have everything they've ever desired. They have the presence of God among them. Remember, the capital L, Lamb, is with them on top of the mountain. What do they have? They have God. I believe they're content with it. That's the patience that the 144,000 will have. But it says, Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. We see an account, maybe for the first time in all of human existence, that people, because they wanted to, 144,000 of them completely sell out to the world, to self. And in one accord, in unison, they follow the Lamb in the wilderness. And all they're concerned with is to the jot and the tittle keeping the commandments of God. That down to the finest detail, they want to keep the faith of Jesus. may call me crazy but these 144,000 that are shielded in a place of refuge I believe that the entire time up until God says alright y'all need to head down there to the valley of Megiddo I believe up until then they're having themselves a revival I know Old Testament worship is going to be reinstated 
but all of them head over heels in love with the fact that they're able to do what God wants them to do for God. Why is they so patient, Brother Jordan? Because they wouldn't rather they wouldn't be doing anything else. Nothing in the world that they'd rather do than what they're doing. But all those around them that are hunting them, they know they can't get to them unless God says so. They're just going to be concerned with things that they can be concerned about. What they can do for God. Well, they don't know where their next meal is coming from. Nope, but they know God's going to send it. Well, they're not going to be able to buy, sell, or trade, or do anything else. They don't care. All they want to be involved in is what God's involved in. You know what's sad? It doesn't say that that's what God demanded of them. It says that they chose to do it. They kept the commandment and the faith of Jesus Christ. God didn't say, do it or I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. This is earnestly out of a desire from within their hearts to do it. And the only thing different between them and today's generation of the church is that they chose to do it. The Antichrist didn't take all those things away from them. They gave them up. Because they said, if that's what it takes to be involved, you can have it. We're sticking with Jesus. We're going to go out into the woods, live like a bunch of Neanderthals, according to y'all's terminology. But we're going to be happier, we're going to be more fulfilled, and we're going to be sustained. Not because of what we've done, but because of the one that we worship. Everybody in the world's going to know about these 144,000 that are in the wilderness because all of them are going to be looking for them. Every day they're looking for one of them to pop his head out so that they say, We found them. Not going to be able to find them. Don't believe it's going to be easy, but I do believe that they're going to be filled with joy and praise and worship towards God and that they're having the time of their lives. sad thing is, is that you could have that today as a child of God. The only reason you don't is because you don't choose to let all them things that hinder you go. You know why God took it down to 144,000? Because that's how far He had to prune it back to get to that, down to a people that would 100% be all in for Him. All He expects from you today is the same thing. He wants to find you without guile, without fault. He wants to be able to put you on a mountain in the wilderness and say, look at what I did in their life. Look at the light that they shine in the world, the salt that they throw onto the world. They do good deeds so that men see our good deeds and glorify our Father which is in heaven. Look at that tiny light that will point you to what? The light. The way, the truth, and the life. Thanks to listeners like you, IBC has had over 100,000 views on our YouTube channel. If you haven't already, subscribe today. And as always, thanks for listening.